This is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff DeBerry. In a bit, we're going to spend some time talking about the role that Black pastors are playing across the country in calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. What's their message? Why are so many clergy members calling for peace? And how could the refrain impact primaries here in America? And later, we'll get into some of the protests and efforts to rally support for a ceasefire in North Carolina. Carborough was the first municipal government in the state to formally vote to approve a call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Other cities that have passed similar resolutions include Durham, Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, and plenty others. But before we get into all that, we're going to explore, consider, discuss, and maybe even deconstruct a narrative about one of the most reliable and predictable voting blocks in American politics, black voters. Joining us is Cynthia Wallace. She's an HBCU graduate, a former Democratic candidate for Congress, as well as the co-founder and executive director of the New Rural Project. That's an organization with a focus on elevating the voices of young and marginalized residents. Cynthia is based in Charlotte. Cynthia Wallace, welcome to Do South. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Um, I appreciate being here. Glad that you are here. All right, Black voters, as dependable a group of voters as there is in American politics. I want our listeners to consider that from 1964 to 2008, this according to a report by the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, that an average of 88% of Black voters voted for the Democratic Party's presidential nominee. Then in 2012, 2016, and 2020, that figure increased to 93%. Cynthia, why should or shouldn't we think about Black voters as a Democratic monolith? So, um, first of all, I don't think we should think of anyone as a monolith. I don't think there's any population that should be um, described that way. Um, I think Black voters have typically leaned Democrat uh, because... Um, I think they've spoken to their issues and concerns. Um, when you think about the Democratic Party, it is very diverse. And I think that's where a lot of the challenges honestly come from. You know, if you are a true monolithic party, then most of your folks probably think the same way. But when you look at the Democratic Party, you've got, you know, African-Americans, Hispanic, um, AAPI, white, LGBTQ. So all of those groups have such disparate issues that it, it kind of makes it difficult. It is a little more complicated to have that group be satisfied with policies, satisfied with things that folks are doing, because it's not necessarily their specific issue. Certainly not clean. Uh, I want to roll with some of what you just said, and I want to get into some of the nuances here. I, I'm sure that many of our listeners, some of our listeners are familiar with the fact that as one point of nuance, as we think about Black voters, Older black voters, specifically men, typically tend to skew conservative on social issues. And I want you to build on this for us, if you would, please. What are some of the areas of nuance that perhaps us in the media and perhaps these these quick conversations uh, as this this phrase, Democratic monolith, and I acknowledge it only to say it's something that I've heard many times in a political bubble. I do try not to use it. Uh, But talk to us a little bit more about nuance as it pertains to black voters. (laughs) So, um, so I am, um, I grew, I live in Charlotte right now, but I grew up in uh, rural Georgia, um, Southern Georgia, right outside of Savannah. And I grew up in the church. And when you think about, um, you know, voters based on demographics and based on ages and black voters, there's a history in some parts of the black church where 
there's a patriarchal nature of the church where, you know, particularly Southern Baptist, some churches, some of them didn't allow women to be preachers. Some of them didn't allow women to be in, you know, even sit in the pulpit. Those things have changed in some ways, but in a lot of ways, there are still vestiges of those things that impact how people think about leadership, um, how they think about, you know, who should be in certain positions. And I think that, you know, one of the things I also thought about after Hillary Clinton lost her election back in 2016 is that rural South, the rural South is probably not very different than the rural Midwest. If you think about, you know, I live in Charlotte. So most of the men I know have had women bosses. They've had women that they've had to lean into in leadership positions. In rural places, there's still a lot of men-only spaces and men in leadership. And so I think it is a different thing for men, particularly in rural places, to kind of accept that women and other diverse folks should be in places of power. So you do have some Black men that um, do lean conservative, in particular as it relates to gender, um, you know, roles that still kind of exist. But I do see some of it changing, and I definitely see um, that not being the case when you look at younger, younger um, Black men, particularly in the South, because they also they have grown up in a different place and in a different time where women have had different roles. Cynthia Wallace is executive director of the New Rural Project. She also sits on the NC State Banking Commission. She was appointed to that post by Governor Cooper three years ago. Uh, She was also elected to uh, the board of Democracy NC back in 2021. I want to talk about black rural voters and some of the leading issues here in 2024 as we move toward the primary. I say issues and black rural voters and what are the first few issues that come to mind for you? What are you hearing? What is uh, what, what is most important? Well, um, with the New Rural Project, one of the things that we said immediately upon even thinking about um, starting this organization, myself and Helen Probst Mills, who co-founded it with me, um, was that we wanted to hear their voice. We didn't want to come into rural spaces and say, we know what you care about. We know your issues and concerns. So we have done focus groups. We've done polling. We do in our community events, on the doors, we ask voters what they think, what do they care about. And it's really not dissimilar to what you might see in a rural Black neighborhood. They care about public education. They care about health care. They care about crime. They're concerned about their safety. They care about issues about their rights. In the Black community, they're very concerned about racism and how that impacts them and their community. Um, and so those are some of the things, obviously, the economy, jobs, wages, those things always come up. Um, folks can, you know, say, this person has been in position, this person has been in position, but it feels like my community hasn't changed. And so we really work hard to, you know, kind of unpack that, you know, what that means and mm-hmm. how that has evolved over time as who is in power in their state, in their county has changed. As we think about the March 5th primary, I'm going to maybe make a bad analogy here. The primary is like this big giant boulder with, I don't know, some nooks and crannies. Like it's hard to get your arms around a boulder this big and just, you know, what are the areas of focus? What's high on the bolt? Like it's just this big creature. That's what the primary is. 
Uh, what are the areas of focus for you as we think about this boulder with the new rural project? Are there particular races you're honing in on? Are you trying to target, uh, get out the vote efforts in certain counties? What's top of mind, front and center for you and your organization right now? So we um, are definitely focused on getting out the vote. You know, with so much happening in the news and so much happening in the world, it's honestly hard for the fact that there is an upcoming election to break through. So we are doing a lot of our work and our social media is very active um, in making sure folks know about what's happening, the dates, the timelines, early voting locations, etc. We do that consistently. We've been doing that since January for the March primary. And we also canvass. We are a door-to-door organization really honed in on the background and experiences that Helen and I brought to this space. And so we actually, at the beginning of February, we hosted a health care, um, a health fair, where we um, basically wanted to make sure folks knew about Medicaid expansion, which came from the, the government. But we also, at the same time we were on those doors, we actually gave them cards that said, here is when early voting starts in your community. This was in Anson County. Here's when, you know, where you can vote. Here's that information. Um, in about a week or so on February 14th, we're going to be in Scotland County in Laurenburg, going door to door, talking to those high value and some infrequent voters about the upcoming primary. So we're on the street in the community. Um, actually on this coming Tuesday, we're going to be in Union County. Um, with Common Cause and some other organizations, letting folks know about the upcoming election, but also all of the different changes that have happened in North Carolina that impacts people's ability to vote. You know, there's been several laws, including the requirement of a um, a photo for ID. Folks that didn't vote in the municipal elections in 2023 will have no idea that that's a new requirement. So we're out in the community in Union County, Anson County, Scotland County, in particular, getting this message out right now. That's Cynthia Wallace from an organization that focuses on elevating the voices of young and marginalized residents. It's called the New Rural Project. Coming up in just a moment, our conversation with Cynthia Wallace continues. And then we'll hear from a reporter who's spoken with dozens of pastors who've signed an open letter calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And they say they keep getting asked by parishioners what they're doing to call for peace. This is Due South. I'm Jeff Tiberi. We'll be right back. This is Due South. I'm Jeff Tiberi. We're continuing our conversation with Cynthia Wallace, the co-founder and executive director of the New Rural Project. 
The New Rural Project seeks to elevate the voices of young and marginalized voices. And I want to stick with the young here in just our final moment or two, because uh, as everyone knows, the two uh, likely nominees for president are old enough to be the grandfathers of people under the age of 30. Uh, This is an old uh, uh, field, uh, point made here. Um, Specifically, as we think about young voters, how are you trying to, like you mentioned uh, uh, social media, but specific to young voters, what are you doing? How are you trying to mobilize them? Because I'm thinking that apathy could be a real theme as you get younger and younger this year. So apathy is probably one of our biggest, um, the biggest reasons why people don't end up turning out to vote, thinking that their vote doesn't matter, thinking that, you know, it's already decided my voice isn't important. And a lot of what New Rural Project focuses on is making sure that folks understand their real power with redistricting and all of the things that happen with gerrymandering. You know, we explain to folks that, you know, folks wouldn't be trying to take away your vote if it wasn't powerful. And so with young people in particular, a um, couple of the programs that New World Project has launched over the last um, couple of years has been our barbershop conversation series called Fade, our beauty salon conversation series called Curls. And we really work to go to places, you know, not the traditional places, you know, I'm a little bit older than some of those folks in their 30s. And so you might be able to reach me in church. If you're trying to reach these younger folks, that's not the place they're going to be. And so we do our our programs in barbershops and beauty salons to speak to those folks in places where they're comfortable, where they frequent. Um, But also one of the things that I do think that is being missed in this um, and what's being discussed is there's so much focus on the young Black men who are kind of negative or on the fence about voting. Well, here's what gives me hope right now. I spent 90 minutes earlier this week talking to a 27-year-old Black man, one-on-one, about civic engagement, about voting. And this young man and another one of his friends, from they both went to North Carolina A&T, they're actually working to start a group called the Takeoff Movement. And their focus is increasing civic engagement and education for younger people. So I think we also have to make sure that there are multiple voices in these stories And so there are young people that are doing amazing things. We've had young people come through our barbershops who are now on boards and commissions. We have young people in their 30s, Black men, all of these are Black men that I'm talking about, who started their own civic engagement organization called Sandhills Voter Initiative after coming out of our barbershop three or four week series. So there is a lot of, you know, I speak to them. I spent about two hours a couple of weeks ago in Anson County talking to a couple of Black men in their 40s about some of their concerns and about Joe Biden's age. And I said to them, you know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, neither one of them will get younger. Like, that's a fact. (laughs) This is who we have. Now, what are your issues and concerns and who do you think is going to address those? And so I think those kind of conversations, individually breaking down people's concerns and connecting the dots between if they vote and if they don't, what might be the impact is how we're going to get more of these folks out to the polls and re-engage like many of them were in 2008 and 2012 when Barack Obama was on the ballot. Will you vote early? Will you vote on March 5th? Ooh, I always debate it. It just depends. I work so much with the organization. I do vote early a lot of times because on election day, we're doing too much work. Right. Um, 
But there's something that I love about voting on Election Day, too. So I'm still debating. Most likely I'm an early voter, though. Cynthia Wallace is co-founder and executive director of the New Rural Project. We've been uh, talking about black voters as well as some of the issues uh, that rural black voters are thinking about in advance of that Super Tuesday, March 5th primary. Cynthia, thanks for joining us on Do South. Thank you. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Support from black voters in the South was integral to President Joe Biden's 2020 election campaign. In 2020, 91 percent of black voters voted for then-candidate Biden. But, as we all know, continued political support is never a sure thing. Our next guest is reporting on a growing political movement fueled by open letters, protests, and even meetings at the White House. Maya King is a political reporter covering the Southeast for The New York Times, based in Atlanta, and she's been reporting on a group of more than 1,000 black pastors calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Maya King, welcome to Do South. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to have you here on Do South. You write as part of your piece that this is a, quote, campaign spurred in part by parishioners who are increasingly distressed by the suffering of Palestinians and critical of the president's response to it. Close quote. How big of a narrative and an issue is this that that you found? Well, politically, it's a pretty it's a pretty remarkable issue. Um, Never in at least 50 years have we seen this level of coordination around a single demand so quickly from black faith leaders um, and then also see them lay this demand directly at the feet of of a White House administration. And the reason why it's so significant um, as it relates to the upcoming presidential election is because this call is coming um, just as much as it's coming from church leaders who are holding these meetings, writing the letters, um, issuing these public calls. It's also coming from their parishioners, their congregants, the folks who are actually filling their pews every Sunday, um, who say they're extremely distressed by this. So it just lets you know that this is a movement that's coming pretty directly uh, from voters themselves. And, and as you point out, a very critical voting block. Let's go specificity here for a moment, please, Maya. The congregants' opinions lay out for us what some of the common ones are. What are they noting? What are they citing? What uh, is the specific message coming from, if you will, uh, the, the the rank and file, the bottom up? Well, you know, they're seeing what a lot of folks are seeing on the news, on their social media sites, and 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 in conversation with one another. The images of destruction and death coming out of the Gaza Strip. And it's extremely distressing uh, to them. One faith leader told me and explained it to me that a number of, of churchgoers who are mostly black feel a level of kinship with Palestinians. They see themselves, they see the Palestinians as oppressed and share a level of empathy with them as black Americans saying that they are also a historically oppressed people. And so, you know, the message is really one that we've first heard from the streets in protest, now coming to the pews. These folks are calling for a ceasefire. They've condemned the violence of the October 7th attacks from Hamas, and they feel like that was an equally, that was, or excuse me, they feel like that was a very violent 
day, and they they certainly recognize that. They also want an end to the violence now being inflicted on Gazans, on Palestinians, saying that that is an outsized uh, response to the violence and and calling for an end to it. Okay, so calling for a ceasefire, an end to the violence. Is there any nuance worth adding there? I mean, that, that speaks for itself, but are they calling for anything further or more detailed? Well, the letter that faith leaders have signed, uh, the public letter and also the advertisements that they've taken out in national newspapers has uh, several demands. The, the first and the loudest, of course, is for a ceasefire. The second is for an end to the military occupation of the Gaza Strip or of the Palestinian territory. They also have condemned the October 7th attack against Hamas and want an end to uh, to the terrorism of that group. And so there's a number of demands that are that are taking place here. And, they, and the faith leaders that I spoke to make very clear that you know, these are these are things that they feel the Biden administration can can help affect, can make happen. So there are petitions and there are letters in this instance, this correspondence. Can you give us a sense of how many people this speaks for? Does this represent? So um, at, by my last count in talking with with these faith leaders, since the story I wrote published, uh, there have been more now faith leaders who have signed on to this letter or joined this call, this coalition. Uh, but at the time of the story's publishing, it was around 1,000. I believe that number has now grown to around 1,200 or so. And a number of these people represent church congregations of upwards of two to three. Some even have uh, over 10,000 congregants um, in their churches. So you multiply it, it's a, it's around, I mean, roughly uh, 150 to 200,000 black church going folks um, who are who are a part of this. We're talking with Maya King here on Due South, and uh, we're discussing some of her recent reporting uh, which highlights the message and the call from uh, black clergymen and members, as well as black parishioners, for a ceasefire uh, in the Israel-Gaza war. Do these folks feel like they're being heard? And I'm going to ask you to editorialize for, I guess, maybe a moment, if you're willing to. Are they being heard? Well, I mean, I, I'll I'll say to your first question, yes, it is significant that they were able to secure meetings within the first weeks of the, or following the October 7th attacks. They were able to meet with White House representatives at the White House and have an audience with the Congressional Black Caucus on this. So certainly they are being heard. And I think in the last few weeks, that's been very telling to me to see that the president and vice president have prioritized when they stop in battleground states or uh, just ahead of the South Carolina Democratic primary, held holding meetings uh, with black faith leaders. So I know that this is a conversation. This is something that has come up and it's something that this White House has paid attention to. But I think the sticking point, of course, here is whether or not they can actually affect change on these demands if a ceasefire is possible. And I think that's what a number of, of Black faith leaders would like to see happen. And they'd also like to see, you know, a little bit more tangible movement, things that they can point to to say and tell their parishioners, this is a president who was working on this, who was actively trying to make this happen. Because what a number another concern, of course, here is that 
uh, the folks who are upset about what's happening in Gaza, who do believe that this president, President Biden, has played a role in, in the suffering of the Palestinian people since October 7th, um, may not want to vote for him in November, may remember this moment. And, and uh, I think the more likely scenario would be that they would stay home. Um, and that would be a huge problem uh, for Democrats in, in November. And so, of course, there is time between now and then. But I believe, you know, on whether or not they're being heard is, is, is something that they're going to have to continue to prove. I want you to run with that a little bit for us, Maya, and I'm going to offer something of a blind pushback. But you say, uh, and, and, and I trust your, your reporting, obviously, that there's this possibility of voters staying at home over this issue. And part of me reflexively wants to say, come on, really? Like in, in this moment with these two characters running for president, I, like th- there's just there's no way that 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 a, a number, a significant number of folks could could possibly sit out a presidential election. But please tell me why you think that's possible. Well, you know, I'm, I'm happy that you that you raised that because it, it brings me to another point here that a number of faith leaders, you know, brought up to me when I when I too asked this question of, you know, when you think of and uh, the the most loyal Democratic voter, it is probably a, an older Black voter from the South who does go to church very regularly. So an issue like this may not necessarily be the thing that keeps them from casting a ballot. But what some people have pointed out to me is that there is a real generational divide here. So while Black faith voters are are largely united in their opposition to what's happening in the Middle East at the moment, a number of younger voters are willing to really exercise their displeasure here by not voting at all. Um, and those are the folks who also are protesting in the streets. Those are the folks who have, uh, you know, been the most vocal in their calls for a ceasefire. And those are the folks who are saying things like, we will remember. You know, I'm talking about voters um, you know, black voters, but also I think this spans race uh, who are looking at what's happening, who are really upset with the Biden administration and who have told me and many others that they are not afraid to stay home in November because they don't see uh, Trump or Biden as a viable option for them. And I think it's important to note the context here of what happened four years ago this month after poor showings, poor performances in Iowa and New Hampshire Joe Biden vaulted to the the front of that race for the Democratic nomination for president. And it was in large part thanks to older black voters in South Carolina. And as you know, Maya King of The New York Times, many of whom are regular uh, churchgoers on on Sunday mornings. You spoke with a pastor in Atlanta, the Reverend Timothy McDonald, senior pastor of First Iconium Baptist Church. Tell us a little bit, please, about what he shared with you. Sure. Uh, well, Reverend McDonald was one of the first people to sign this letter uh, calling for a ceasefire and was a, a leader of a coalition of Georgia pastors specifically who were who were making this demand. Um, and, you know, the most striking thing that he told me was that it will just be very difficult uh, to get voters, his voters, back out to the polls to support Biden because they are so disappointed. And he does preach about the issue um, of or he does preach about the war and what's happening uh, in in Gaza on Sundays. And he says that he has had, you know, a very enthusiastic response from his parishioners that a number, if not most of the folks in his congregation, really do agree that a ceasefire should happen. But, you know, he was one of the first people to tell me that he and other um, black clergy have really you know, understood how much their work is cut out for them here heading into November. 
And I think another wrinkle of this that's interesting is that um, Black clergy, you know, this is Reverend McDonald, but others have considered the possibility of uh, rescinding, you know, invitations to Democratic candidates to their very influential pulpits or declining to make any, you know, political statements in favor of, of voting for Biden or, you know, making anything, doing anything that, or excuse me, refraining from doing anything that would certainly help Democrats in November. Um, but they understand that the, on the other side that uh, another Trump presidency, in their view, would be very detrimental to their congregants. And so they're really having to strike a balance here between um, holding the president and his administration accountable, applying pressure to get them to move on this issue um, without totally alienating the voters that Biden would really need to win and continuing the work to just turn them out to go to the polls altogether. So it's really, it's it's a lot and it's just increased, um, I think, the onus that's already been placed on black clergy now sort of uh, amplifying that in many ways. The term bully pulpit exists for a very good reason. And what you literally are just pointing out is uh, the threat of or the conversation about cutting off access to the bully pulpit for Democratic and progressive candidates. And that that strikes me as a really stark image of what is, is happening here. If you could just briefly go second level for us, uh, are we talking about state legislative candidates or, or sitting state legislators or U.S. Senate candidates or, or municipal? Who, who are they potentially talking about uh, limiting access to the, the bully pulpit? Well, I don't think they've really gotten that far yet, um, at least in publicly sharing what that what that would look like. Because, again, as people shared with me that they were that they had considered it, they said that they were also very nervous about that tactic because of what it could mean in terms of dissuading their voters from turning out. They still want to get their folks to the polls. And so I'm not really sure yet, you know, when we could see this this level of uh, of pressure and, and what kind of office it would it would affect. But I will say it just underlines the importance of the black church to democratic politics. That's Democrats um, and also to to democracy, lowercase d. Um, you know, the black church has long been the center of political organizing in black communities. Uh, there are, you know, events like Souls to the Poles, where anywhere from car caravans to entire bus and van loads of people go straight from church services to the polls. And it's a really effective activity in terms of getting folks out. And these are largely Democratic voters, as, as we've laid out pretty well here. Um, but also at the same time, I just think, you know, outside of that, um, it, it just underlines really the importance of, of black faith voters here who are now really understanding their political power in this upcoming election. That's Maya King of The New York Times. I'm Jeff Tiberi. This is Due South on WUNC. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. It's Due South on listener-supported WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri, speaking with Maya King, New York Times reporter, about reporting that she's done across the country about clergy of more than a 1,000 who have signed a letter and are pushing the Biden administration to move forward with some sort of peace agreement, some sort of ceasefire in Gaza. Let's go back to January for a moment. President Biden was having a campaign event at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. This, of course, is uh, where a terribly tragic incident occurred nine years ago when a white supremacist shot nine black churchgoers. The president was there visiting uh, and was interrupted by protesters. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Obviously, there's notable significance to the the Charleston Church, Maya. Uh, President Biden speaking there. South Carolina is is also this important state that I noted earlier that helped him on his path to the White House four years ago. Um, that ceasefire now chant. What what was your takeaway from that? Sure, I'm, I was in the in the sanctuary at Mother Emanuel covering that event when that protest took place, and essentially what the the, the protesters, the demonstrators said was. If you care about the lives lost here at Mother Emanuel nine years ago uh, to saying this to President Biden, then you should care about the lives lost and being lost in Gaza right now and then calling for a ceasefire. And it was a really it was a real moment, um, uh, of course, of confrontation, direct confrontation with this president on this issue. And one of the first times in 2024 uh, at that point that he had that he had you know, been so directly challenged. But I also want to point out that their protests were quickly drowned out by chance from folks in that sanctuary of four more years, four more years. A number of Democrats I spoke to, including those in in the in the faith community, uh, felt like that was an inappropriate time uh, to protest. While others, um, you know, more on the progressive side of the faith community said, this is the legacy of the black church. This is where protest and where political activity was born. And so when you enter the sanctuary, perhaps you could expect to encounter that spirit. Um, And again, these are two totally different interpretations of the moment. But both of those kinds of faith leaders are signed on to these letters and, uh, and are joining in coalition with one another to call for a ceasefire, which again, to me, just underlines the gravity of this demand, how far reaching it is, and uh, and how urgent the call is that you've got folks across different denominations and interpretations of, of, of Christian teachings really united uh, in this call. We've got just a couple of more moments here, but you talk about far-reaching, and I do want to underscore one particular point, and, and please expound on this if you would like, but this is not just one group from one denomination, as you point out, and specifically to, to Southern Baptist congregations, there are uh, conservative bodies, there are more progressive churches as well, and uh, I'm just curious if that range that you're speaking of, if there are any examples that come to mind to kind of highlight the range of uh, perhaps social ideology that is at play here? 
Well, sure. I mean, I think, again, what happened after Mother Emanuel having these different interpretations of the protest um, and folks still, you know, signing on to this call for a ceasefire was very striking to me. And I also asked a number of these uh, of these faith leaders, you know, if they if they themselves would describe their own uh, re- approach to religion. And many of them said that they are are conservative, honestly, in their interpretations of the word. Um, and yet and still feel like this is a very urgent call that they have to make. And um, it's underlined for some uh, this sort of resurgence that that I think many in the black faith community hope takes place of this level of uh, civic engagement. I think for many years, um, you know, as I mentioned, the black church has been the center of political organizing. But for many years, a lot of that political organizing has been kind of fragmented, maybe concentrated among larger churches with more resources, while smaller ones are not able to do as much work. And now with all of these pastors and faith leaders coming together and uniting around this call and also realizing the gravity of the problem that they face in terms of turning out voters again, they started to work together in ways that we haven't seen for really a generation. And I think that's given a number of um, of Black faith leaders, no pun intended, quite a bit of faith <laughs> and a lot of hope uh, heading into November that they can actually strengthen their numbers and beyond this call for a ceasefire, actually have a stronger coalition of people uh, to continue to organize on behalf of causes that they find that they, or that they that they can unite behind. I'm Jeff Tabiri, chatting with Maya King, a New York Times political reporter. She's based in Atlanta, and we're talking about calls from black parishioners and black clergy members and churchgoers for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas tragedy and conflict that has been, of course, uh, in play since October the 7th. I want to circle back to voter turnout, Maya, and dare you a little bit or encourage you or ask you to talk about this potential threat of voter turnout and what kind of support or lack of support it could mean for Biden. And the only, I guess, little bit of broad context I want to drop in here is we're in a primary season now and the primary races appear to be all but decided. So there's less of an impetus for black voters in South Carolina or Wisconsin or Arizona, or you pick the state to turn out. It doesn't quite matter as much now. It will obviously matter a lot more come October and November. But if you would take that in and move forward with it, voter turnout impacted by this issue, how much are you really expecting to see voter turnout shift? You know, I really think it depends. Um, If you're talking about general election turnout, there are so many factors that could impact uh, folks. And if we're talking specifically about black voters here, you know, their willingness to turn out, whether they're really if this current slump that polling from The New York Times and other places shows among black voters Um, If that continues to hold steady, then sure, we very well could see uh, a a level of um, a falling off or a dip in turnout among this block. But one thing that many Democrats, uh, allies of the president and, and even folks who are frustrated with him in the faith community have shared with me is that it is early um, and that this is a campaign that's willing to spend a lot of money and really a lot of time uh, courting black voters again and and pushing a, a policy forward message that says 
they really have delivered for this community. Um, and there is the possibility that the fighting in the Middle East will cease by November. And that could also uh, provide an opening for at least some black voters to who are frustrated about the war to turn back out. Um, and, you know, I I was in South Carolina uh, two weeks ago for the Democratic primary there where Biden was running largely unopposed and it was the first test of black enthusiasm um, because South Carolina is such a heavily black state. And Democrats there were very pleased with the level of turnout. It was rather low at, at, at under 200,000 people. But for, again, an, an uncontested and largely uncompetitive race, the fact that folks still turned out and seemed um, receptive to this president's message and that of his surrogates, I think, gave Democrats uh, at least a window into a, a level of hope, one, in, in terms of what they can expect in November, but also a window into how much work they have to do until then. And you have done some reporting on uh, a new effort by two black church groups in Georgia trying to get voter turnout up to rise this election. That's something, of course, uh, it sounds like a counterweight, at least as I, as I spew it out here, uh, to some of what we've been talking about. But can you elaborate a little bit uh, about the effort there? Yes. So the African, African Methodist and uh, Christian Methodist churches, two of the largest predominantly black uh, Christian denominations in Georgia, are joining forces, essentially combining their resources and their congregations uh, to uh, form a program that will that is geared towards civic engagement and increasing voter turnout among uh, among their voters. And this is about one hundred and forty thousand black faith voters, and that's just the folks in their congregations. Um, in addition to, voter registration and voter education. They also plan to hold listening sessions to really understand what's on the minds of these voters. And they also plan to expand their efforts into the communities outside of the churches for folks who might not actually be members of the churches, but still uh, trying to get them back out to the polls to vote. And it's significant because these churches have not joined forces. And as I said before, a lot of the efforts to organize black voters among black churches have been a little bit sporadic. And so this is a level of cohesion that we haven't seen before. And of course, in Georgia, an important battleground state, it could really make a big difference. I want to circle back to something interesting that you noted uh, several moments ago, which was and I don't remember if you used the word kinship or not, so please push back if that was not the right word, but this almost connection or solidarity uh, between the black community and maybe a little bit more uh, among black churchgoers and the Palestinian people. And this push for a ceasefire, uh, this opinion, this stance is clearly not isolated to black churchgoers, right? Like we have seen this all over the world from South Africa to, you know, other uh, humanitarian efforts and causes throughout the, the United States. But I want to hear your thoughts on this longstanding record existence bridge of solidarity, if you will, between black Americans fighting for civil rights and Palestinians uh, and maybe some elements of this that you didn't touch on earlier. Sure. Um, well, you know, you're right. This is a, a legacy of solidarity that has existed for some time. And it was explained very plainly to me by a faith leader that you know, black folks in America 
feel a level of kinship or a level of solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza because they see them as as both they see both groups as oppressed groups. And so that's why um, this this call for a ceasefire from black faith leaders has a lot of salience. But, um, you know, uh, one what one person has pointed out to me is after, you know, high profile shootings of um, of folks, police shootings of folks like Michael Brown in in Ferguson, uh, there were a number of Palestinians who actually expressed real solidarity with uh, the black with Black Lives Matter protesters and with Black Americans who were victims of police violence. Um, so this is something that stretches beyond just faith spaces. And a number of the young folks who are out in the streets protesting, frankly, are not um, always religious um, people, but they they do they do a number of the black folks in particular do feel um, yes, some level of solidarity with with Palestinians. Maya King is a political reporter covering the Southeast for the New York Times, based in Atlanta, and she's been reporting on a group of more than a thousand black pastors calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. She's also been your guest here on Due South. Maya, thank you for the time and the knowledge. Thank you for having me. As we were just discussing, calls for a ceasefire in Gaza have been gaining public attention and political traction. People have been mobilizing locally, even if this is an international story. The United States has stuck with its ally Israel, saying the nation has a right to defend itself after the brutal attack on Israel on October 7th, during which Israeli civilians were killed, more than 1,200 in total, this according to Israel. But the international community is not as convinced. At the United Nations, a resolution to immediately instate a humanitarian ceasefire has been halted not once, not twice, but three times now by the United States. Some of those nations which are seeking a ceasefire argue that Israel's response is unequal to what happened last fall. They say 29,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed, this according to Gaza's health ministry. The nation of South Africa took the efforts further, bringing an international court case against the nation of Israel, hoping The Hague would agree with them and immediately call for an end to military action in Gaza. Here on the ground in North Carolina, protests have been ongoing. There was, of course, a demonstration in Durham in November where people blocked the Durham Freeway, Highway 147, during afternoon rush hour. It was planned by leaders of the Triangle's Jewish Voice for Peace chapter. Then earlier this month, the Raleigh City Council meeting was interrupted by protesters. It had to end early. Y'all, I can't, we can't keep the meeting going if you guys chant. We're going to recess. The town of Carborough was the first community in North Carolina to pass a resolution in favor of a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas conflict. That was in November. Okay, it's a motion and a second. All in favor, say aye. 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 And all all opposed, say no. No. I count four in favor and three opposed. Uh, The motion carries. Just this week, the city of Durham passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire as well. And it was a victory for organizers there who've been trying to get a resolution for a ceasefire, which we should say is mostly symbolic, approved by a local municipality. Conversations with local communities and organizations and compromise among city council members led to the resolution that was finally passed, even with two dissenting votes. 
But for one city council member, the resolution didn't go far enough. I, I, there's something about the, the person who spoke about the diary of Anne Frank, I want to say, and it really is pulling on me not to address that and acknowledging that the word genocide needs to be included in this resolution. We'll continue to keep you updated here in 2024 as part of our Purple Ballot series as we keep tabs on what is happening in 2024 in North Carolina, the South, across the United States, and ultimately, as we've been talking about, around the world. Thanks, as always, for listening to Do South. This segment was produced by Cole Del Charco. Our other producers are Rachel McCarthy and Stacia Brown. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. And our theme music was produced by Quilla. For co-host Leonida Inge, I'm Jeff Tabiri. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.